0: We've been fighting a long time and we've all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important.
1: On the Sens of I'm Steve Cunningham with Friar Anthony of the Franciscans Minor talking to you about pre-55 Holy Week, which you may have seen a couple episodes or masses on the YouTube channel streaming. But Father's almost the expert on this and give us a little history on the why is the pre-55 important or relevant in any sort of matter. So, Friar, thank you for being with us. And uh yes, why is the pre-55 important?
0: Well, um I mean it's a it's a it's a very big and complicated and actually there's there's quite a few experts out there now. I've been noticing there's some really wonderful articles that are out. There's a, a good new article that's on um a new liturgical movement and every year more articles are coming out. Um on the website you can actually find. i I've, I've placed a few on there that are good to give people kind of insight on, you know, to to, to know why this is why the old liturgy is something that's important for us um i think the main thing is is we those most of us who 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 want the pre-55 holy week it's it has nothing to do with polemics Mm -hmm. there tends to be that there's a word they throw around it's called antiquarianism this desire for anything that's older if it's older it's better Oh, we want that because it, it goes back a long time ago, so it must be something that's better because we know the things that are new. We don't like those things, and, and you know, so on and so forth. But it isn't antiquarianism, and in fact, I fell into it myself. When, this was, when I was a young friar, we were asked to do this for the sisters. The old Holy Week, that meant what was in the 1962 Missal, the Holy Week when it got first reformed in 1955, but none of us knew any of that. So we, we did that Holy Week, and we were pleased with it because we didn't know anything else. We knew it was traditional or we thought it was and so we liked it. Um, then the next year, they said, well, we want to do one that was before that. And so I said the same thing everybody says now. Well, why do they just want to go back further? It's always they want to do something that's further back. They want to go back further. And they, they printed off this little book, and you can find it on the website, the pre-1955 website, It's a little, it's like a 15 or 18 page. I scanned it. A good layman found the book for me. We scanned it, and I put it in there. I've had somebody type it up since. I'm going to make a booklet out of it. I just haven't had time to do it. But it's it's an intro into a layman's liturgical series that Fortescue, the famous Fortescue, the good priest from England, he wrote this beautiful, uh, basically it's a summary of a book that was by Thurston. Thurston, he was a a Jesuit priest who wrote a a book on Holy Week that you can still get. It's it's out of print. Uh, Eventually, maybe I'll have it on the website or something, but it's out of print, but you can get it through, you know, these book companies that they reprint books and stuff. Um, But he he does an 18 or 15 page summary of that. And the sisters printed and bound for me this little tiny book and they gave it to me and I read through it. And that's just all started making sense. The reason they wanted they wanted to go back further. If we want to keep saying they wanted to go back further, the reason they wanted to go back further was because they wanted the liturgy to make sense. They weren't they weren't looking for something that was older. But so the nineteen the pre nineteen fifty five Holy Week is the Holy Week that goes back to when Holy Week started. And when did Holy Week start? We don't know when Holy Week started. Holy Week is an organic thing that started to develop here and there. mostly came to us from, uh, we have testimonies and written journals that came from pilgrims from the 300s that uh, went to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem during Holy Week, they came back and started to tell the other Christians what they saw. Well, on Palm Sunday, they all went out of the town towards Bethany, and they all gathered there with the bishop, and there they sang hymns and they read scripture and the deacon read certain uh, passages from scripture. And then they loaded the bishop up on a horse or a donkey. And then they they, 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 they paraded him in, reenacting what happened with our Lord on that same day, you know, 350 years ago. Yeah. And so this is what people at Jerusalem, the Christians at Jerusalem would do. And so afterwards, uh, she, she finally made her way back home. And she started to tell other Christians about this. Well, those who couldn't go to Jerusalem for a pilgrimage, eventually they started to bring the practices that they found in Jerusalem, like the adoration of the cross, Palm Sunday, uh, and and all the rest. And they would bring that to their their local area. And they would start to live those as they had heard those. And those would start to be spread amongst, organically, spread amongst the Christians. When here in the Roman, in the Roman Rite, in in the West, those things, when we talk about that, when the, when the liturgists talk about that, when the church historians talk about it, they say these rites came to us from north of the Alpines, right? So they, they came up from, you know, they, they made their way like to France and above, and then they came down to Rome. Mm-hmm. And it's a most of this stuff we really don't know where many of, most of it comes from. But just to give an example, when we're looking at the 19, the pre 1955 Holy Week, the the most modern thing in it is the adoration of the cross, mm-hmm. and that's from the eight hundreds. It's from the eight hundreds, yeah. and so that that finally made its way back, and it started to come down to us, and all Christians started to embrace because these were beautiful things to do. Uh, so we're not we don't we don't look to go backwards. It all gets summed up, and if you get on the the website, I don't. There's some better arguments out there that I've been noticing recently. There's uh, a recent um, article, like I said, you'll find it on um, uh, New literary Movement. And it has a good, it, it asks the question, is this just antiquarianism? And gives basically an explanation why why we do this. But I have a simple, a very simple, it's, it's without polemics. It, on the very first page of the pre-1955 website, it just has a simple explanation there. And there's a lot more you can say, a lot more complicated and detailed kind of liturgical and canonical explanations. But simply put, you're just going before the liturgical reform started. Mm -hmm. And when this dawned on me, it was after we had, it was the first year we did the 19, the pre-1955 Holy Week. It was in 2011. We did it at an old monastery in Italy with some sisters with closed doors. Mm -hmm. And on our way after that, on Easter day, we're driving back to our friary. And the Father Superior had one of those phones that you can look things up on. It showed on there that Pope Benedict at the time, his homily that he gave at the, the vigil mass, St. Peter's, started with, before the liturgical reform, when the vigil had 12 readings. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the pre-1955 he's talking about. That's when it started to make sense to me. It's like ah, it was be- the liturgical reform. We're not talking about when the thing got reformed. We're talking about when the reform, when the um, when the commission first got assembled or established at Rome for um, for doing the liturgical reform. So it was 1948. So this all started in 1948. So when we talk about the pre 1955, what we're talking about is is really. Before that group that got together in 1948, before they started changing stuff. Now, now we might ask, well, the, the church approved that it was during the pontificate of Pius XII. This is all true. But if you really start looking into it, there's all kinds of strange things about it. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just look at the, the reform that they did in 1955, it's called the uh, restoration of Holy Week. Mm-hmm. Well, either it's a lie or, or they're... Mm-hmm. Or they're talking about something that, that we're not talking about. What do they mean by restoration of Holy Week? Well, they, they tried to restore the times, which the times aren't necessarily restored properly either, because for example, the vigil would be done when the sun's going down. That's when you light the first fire. The vespertine fire is lit when the sun's going down. But now you wait. You do it at midnight, or when it doesn't make any. It, it, it also doesn't make any sense. But before we were doing the liturgies after noon. The rubrics always said. The, the, the liturgy starts after noon. Nome. Mm-hmm. No's usually about three o'clock, but we would still do it earlier than that like at midday or just after midday between mm-hmm. you know between 12 and two o'clock, something like that. So it seems that Pius to 12th, if you even read the document when they're talking about the restoration of Holy Week, uh, it makes a lot of sense when you' if they're just talking about restoring times. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still not sufficient, but it, it seems that we, we can at least, at least give the benefit of the doubt to what that restoration might have been. But that doesn't, what, what, what do we mean by restoration when we're taking insignificant liturgical practices from Eastern rites and bringing them into the Roman rite and now using them as significant practices in the Roman rite while eliminating our Roman practices. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially what started to happen in all the reforms and the way I see it. And I I could be wrong. I I, I don't know, but it just seems that the Holy week for, they had, they had a few different reasons why they had to change Holy week. One, it was their experimentation process for changing the whole liturgy. And we know Pope Benedict wrote a book. Most people know about the spirit of the liturgy Mm -hmm. and who's already showing kind of how this liturgical mindset and, uh, debate had been going on already for 100 years before Vatican II. It just seems like the people that were not of the, our mindset got into power and were able to start doing the things that they wanted to start to do. And the only, how can you start to change liturgy? So the, 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 this is another another question when we look at why the pre-1955 Holy Week we, we see that they were able to arrive at the new mass and, and it's snowball effect that it has right now, because we know that the new mass isn't very stable. It just const- I was in California on pilgrimage for, for 50 days, and every day I walked to a new church. And every day I saw a whole different liturgy, even in the same diocese. And that's an effect of what Paul, what Paul, what Paul VI referred to as uh, conforming the liturgy to the contemporary way of thinking. And when he talked about that, conforming the liturgy to the contemporary way of thinking... What he's talking about is the reason why they had to change Holy Week, which began the process for arriving at the ordinary form of the Mass, the new Mass. So my point is, you had something in the Holy Week that was the root and the foundation of our whole liturgy, a part of our liturgy that never changes. Now what I mean by that is, as we get closer to Holy Week, we start coming towards Holy Week. You start seeing, it's like an onion. Mm-hmm. The whole liturgy starts to peel itself away. Mm-hmm. You start getting rid of, uh, like, for we haven't been saying the Alleluia since Septuagesima started. Mm-hmm. And then when you get into uh, Holy Week, things get more austere. Then you have different liturgies. It just gets more austere. Now we're in Passion Tide, and in Passion Tide, you have to peel back the, the glory bees. Now as we're getting ready to go into the Triduum. You start getting ready glory you start to get rid of the glory bees um, you, now you're saying you know uh, you're saying mots with the lights off I mean it just it just keeps paring down until we get to the point where right after the liturgies we strip all the altars we say Vespers is just in monotone and then we just all process out in the dark you know th- these are kind of the things we start seeing we're peeling an onion back the whole time what are we doing we're peeling back a lot of organic development. And we're arriving at that thing that is the unchangeable, the untouchable, the, the, the Holy of Holies. And that's what Holy Week is. Holy Week is that archaic foundation of the whole liturgy. We, we, see, we still see dry masses in it. That's what we would have seen on Palm Sunday if we had Palm Sunday this year. We, we would have seen that, that whole liturgy that happens. Now, not everybody can agree that's what's going on there because it's so old we really don't know. But what you have there is a, it's like a mass without a mass just to bless the palms.
1: Yeah.
0: It has the, the form of a, a dry mass, a seca, is what they call it. Mm-hmm. Now we still see that. We'll see it again on Friday. On Good Friday, you have the same thing. That's, that's the perfect uh, uh, example of one where we get to a, a whole liturgy that doesn't have a consecration. Mm-hmm. It's a mass. It's the only time of the year we have it. And all of those, the pastorals, as some of them called them, or or these, all these liturgists or the theologians that changed the liturgy, they made things like dry masses. And they made a lot of these changes because it was it was towards those things they didn't like. So what you see in the old liturgy, in the pre-1955 liturgy, you say you see that archaic liturgy that is the root and foundation of, of what our our liturgy organically developed from. If we lose that root, if we sever that root, and we no longer have contact with that thing which had been so so, so passed down to us uh, so diligently, and I don't mean just Holy Week, because Holy Week comes to us later on, but we have the Mass inside of there, we we have our other liturgies that are inside of there, and those are also coming down with this inside of Holy Week. We get to you sever that, and now you establish liturgy based on a group of people that can sit down and and decide according to contemporary way of thinking, this is how we're going to do the liturgy now. Well, that's where you can see today. You you don't have the same liturgy in every church you visit. Every every church you visit, they have something else going on. And in fact, every priest you talk to has a different idea of what liturgy is, even if he's a good priest, because you don't have in seminaries you can't have a course that starts to teach you about the theological discipline of liturgy if liturgy is no longer a theological discipline, don't know if that makes any sense. But.
1: No, it does. I remember uh, a sermon that, that I had before that and it's on the website that talked about the old uh, Palm Sunday, and i had never even heard about this till, like I said, five years ago. We were talking off camera, and but I heard the sermon before then. Going, what is he talking? That'd be cool to see the, you know, deacon slamming the cross against the door. things like that. <laughs> Where, what what happened? I mean, I think there's no resources on any of this. So I was trying to find photos and see anything. And, but you know, listen, I put a three hour uh, lecture that you put up on and you about the depth you got in. you going, I never heard, I didn't even know the bishops had shoes under the shoes. <laughs> you know, talking about yeah. the lines <laughs> under the feet. So, I, mean, I think it was Danielle, uh, Danielle Metzer that talked about how the Protestants went after. Uh, our fathers, the church fathers, to kill, to get the Protestantism, and we basically killed off the language, which is the bread for a society, to get to where we're at now. I, mean, I know Pius the tenth changed the uh, the miss uh, was it no, the divine uh, the uh, divine office, and they thought that was untouchable. Would that lead to give the eyebrows? Of, hey, now we could change the holy the holy week. I mean, what what are some big? I mean. It's almost like why did they change Holy Week?
0: Yeah, well, they had they had to change Holy Week if they wanted to change the liturgy. So I don't know. I mean, I know that right now there is a lot more talk about the brevity of uh, the liturgical reform of the brevity by Pius the mm-hmm. tenth, and I don't I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I do know that uh, the, the good Archbishop Anthony Snyder has also said some things recently, and there is a lot more study on that. Mm-hmm. It, and, and I would I would refer to them for you know because I, I would trust what they're saying. It, maybe that's part of it. You can definitely tell that in the air there was a need for newness. Mm-hmm. That was that was coming from as the revolution started to kind of settle down. Maybe outside the church and started to kind of impact everybody else. Maybe it's because we were getting complacent. I don't know, but. At least when it came to, I think it wasn't so much Holy Week that people really cared about changing. Because if you see the, the new Holy Week, this is the interesting thing, the new Holy Week that's in the Novus Ordo is more faithful than the the one you find in the 1962 Missal. It's actually more Roman. The one that you find in the Novus Ordo is more Roman than the one you find, the, like for, for example, the readings, mm-hmm. the four readings, you have four readings in the 1962 for the vigil, mm-hmm. 12 to four. Why four? I don't know. They just decided what's have four. And so I don't know if they just flipped the coin. Like he wants four. I want seven. They, and they want of just said, okay, four. I don't know. Those, those, notes are, those notes are out there now. And some people have done some studies on them. Uh, it would be interesting to read a bit more of those archives. But the six was a Roman tradition. And so at least, so you can see they made improvements from that first uh, experiment that they made in 1955, and then they improved it when they got to the the, the 1969 liturgy. Uh, But but they had to touch Holy Week to be able to get to that change, because now nobody thinks about liturgy being passed down. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but the general way of thinking, liturgy isn't passed down to us. The authority tells us what to do, and we just do that. That was never a Roman way of thinking. The authority was the guardian of the liturgy, and Pius V, St. Pius V, he, he shows us that very clearly, that he had to firm the thing up. He didn't make liturgical changes. He just, he said, wait, there's all kinds of new stuff going on. Let's, let's make sure we know what we're doing. And let's preserve that and hand that on to everybody. And so that's when it started to become more codified. And we started passing on a particular liturgy to protect it, really, during a time where everything was at danger from the Protestant uh, influences that were everywhere. So with the liturgy, that we, what we're given now, the only way to arrive at is if you take that stable component away and then it can be changed according to contemporary way of thinking. But think about the contemporary way of thinking. I've, I left the country and was in Italy for, you know, about 10 years. And when I got back, everything was changed. You know, people change very rapidly now do we change the liturgy rapidly? No. The liturgy is still basically set in the 1960s. The music's the same. Uh-huh. You're doing the same stuff. It really isn't any different. And that's why so many of the millennials really don't like to go to the new mass. They're kind of, uh, they're just naturally finding their way out of that respectfully, uh-huh. but they find their way out of it so that they say, uh, they, they just know they have a sense that you know, there has to be something that's deeper than the 1960s. Uh-huh. You know, they're not, the 60s in the least bit, at least the, the ones that are Catholic. So um,
1: I I can attest to that
0: so that's why they had to that's why they had to they had to change Holy Week. It had to the, the attack they, they knew exactly what they were doing. It had to go to Holy Week. If you can change Holy Week the untouchable and that's the that's the point of that the liturgy got the one of the reasons the Holy Week it, it never organically grew. Holy was passed down to us and we have this bare bones archaic liturgy because it was considered the holy of holies you didn't ever touch it and that's why you, you have this you still have this dry mass you couldn't put in antiphons you couldn't uh, add in different colors you couldn't do you couldn't have it develop and grow because it was the holy of holies it was given to us like this and we do it just like this but as soon as it's over, you can have development in these other feast days and, and the way we do the Gloria, and we can have different mass proffers. But for Holy Week, this is what it is. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I remember my, my priest back in uh, Denver before we moved, he uh, talked about Holy Week as in this is where we throw everything in. Every, I mean, literally, it's like the All Star Week meets the World Series, meets the Super Bowl, <laughs> all in one week. So, like you said, if you kill that one, then it just trickles down for everything else. But yeah. I remember going to you know a Tritium before I moved and wanting to, you know, I just dis- I had a flute playing in the background. I wanted to take the flute and bang it over the lady's head. Then yeah. I found the P55 and going. I like, signed me up. I'll I'll usher this Thursday. This is fantastic. You read Dom Guerinje. Now it makes sense what he's saying. in that there. makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah. uh, And then, like I said, the three hour talk that he did, if you guys ain't seen it, obviously it's already posted yesterday. Uh, The website, uh, he's got a ton of more information on the website will be linked below. Uh, Father, if you remember your lecture, what was something that you didn't cover in it that you wish you would have looking back?
0: I'll be honest. It's been three years. I I haven't. um, I don't remember what I talked about.
1: <laughs> it's, yeah, I'd be, I'd be something going, well, you talked about everything. Um,
0: I mean, the thing is, when you talk, it's a, it was a three hour talk. And to talk about Holy Week in three hours, I mean, afterwards, <laughs> yeah. you're just like, you know, you, you really need, what you need to do is you do like a three hour talk for three days yeah. at Holy Week in Holy
1: Weekend. There's one. We'll get controversial. The foot wash.
0: Yeah. that it's blew me away I didn't you
1: know about that being at the end.
0: Yeah, the barefoot thing, you find it. People in the Roman right, everybody wants to go into church barefoot nowadays. You, you see, like, you, you'll see people that are, I mean, you know, friars that all want to be barefoot, and they'll, they'll tell everybody what the spirituality is. Well, Moses, when he went to the burning bush, he had to take off his feet because it was sacred ground, and that's what we do when we go into church. I mean, that's hogwash. Mm. And Roman, I mean, it's not hogwash where, where Moses was because there on sacred ground, that's what you do. Uh, I was in in England for a while and there's a lot of Indians there meaning from India and and they would come to the place where we were and they would all use the chapel well that's eastern culture and so when they get to the chapel they all kick off their shoes and go in because you do not go into a chapel uh, with your shoes on because for them it's disrespectful but for us we're from the west You, you you would never dare walk into a chapel with no shoes on so the, the difference is, it's good what the Indians are doing because it's their culture. This that's the culture that Moses was in. It was the Eastern culture, and that's even what the doctor, the, the fathers of the church, their commentaries will say. Uh, so it's not just me making that up. But when it comes to us, you don't take your shoes off in church. Now now people will correct me and will say, "What about the adoration of the cross?" Okay, you you got me on the adoration of the cross. That's one time where people take their shoes off, and because it's such a holy moment. Mm-hmm you're approaching in great humility towards the cross, but in no other instance in fact they tried to push this I don't know what year it was, they tried to revise the pontificals Mm -hmm. and so if we know how a pontifical works and most people that are probably watching your show do but a pontifical, the bishop either comes in his liturgical shoes he doesn't have to wear the liturgical shoes anymore and actually they're quite difficult to come up with sometimes but if he wears the liturgical shoes he either comes in them which they're made of very fancy you know, they're handmade and you don't want him just walking around outside or he shows up in the sacristy first. You dress him in the shoes mm-hmm. and then you process in and do the vestiture at the altar, mm-hmm. at the throne or at the fod stool where he's going to be. Mm-hmm. Well, they tried to change that because they wanted the bishop to be able to change his footwear inside the church. And they did change it. And then that immediately got corrected and said, no, the bishop is not to take off his footwear in the church. Mm-hmm. In the Roman right, that's disrespectful. You don't do that. So how do they get around that? They got shut down on the pontifical. So now they get to do whatever they want to to Holy Week. And for Holy Week, let's wash everybody's feet up front and have everybody watch. Okay. I mean, anybody that's participated in it, even when, when you're a kid, it's ugly. Mm-hmm. It's ripping their pant leg up and you got bare legs there and you got dirty feet. And they're playing with their socks and they're all just sitting there and you're sitting there watching them and everybody knows this doesn't, this just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. But the foot washing is a very holy thing in fact it, it's something from the liturgy that we have a command from our Lord to wash each other's feet mm-hmm. not to mock the washing of the feet many of us after these years of having the foot washing and watching this in the church we get this we, we, we start to scoff almost at the washing of the feet but it, it, it's a command by our Lord to do it so it, but it never happened in the church mm-hmm. or at least not in front center at the really really big churches they had something called the uh, um, the the Secularisteria, this, this, uh, this area, it was a whole nother chapel off to the side. And usually you you could even do vestiture of bishops over there. You might have different liturgies. You could do it over there or like religious would do it in the refectory. The vestments on with all the liturgical, but you would do it in your refectory. You didn't do it in the church in front of everybody. So that it's the barefoot thing in the Roman, rite. We don't take our shoes off in church. It's not, I mean, I know some some Franciscans that only take their shoes off when they go into the church. Mm-hmm. And when the, the Franciscans are all Roman right. And so that, that doesn't, it's just, it's contrary to our history and our culture as, as Roman Catholics. But people are, we're so attracted to novelty nowadays. And because, because our history has basically been severed from us, our traditional history, uh, we don't know it. We so easily a- adapt and, and embrace things that are foreign to us. Mm-hmm. And so, people, when they see it, they just jump all over it. Even in the traditional, you see it all, all over. In the you see it in uh, traditional religious movements, uh, religious life that's going around right now. People will start little religious communities, but there's always some kind of novelty, something that we would never do in tradition before. But now they they found their traditional community on some novelty that that they have to thank uh, the, the the last forty years for. But that's kind of where, I don't know, I can go on a tangent about the, the, the bare feet. But you saw it. I don't know if you saw the picture I sent you. I put it up in the video. Did you? Yes. But you see how those kids are acting in the video when they're putting their feet. They know they're not supposed to be doing that because they're, all, they're, they're acting like maniacs, putting their feet in each other's faces while sitting down in front of the altar with the tabernacle there. The priest is vested for mass, and he's sitting there on the stairs on the carpet without his shoes on. They all know they're not supposed to be doing that, and that's why they're acting silly, because it's wrong.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could talk about. I mean, what's going on right now? You know, I mean, there's no sacrilege going on because there's no masses. I was at a baptism a couple weeks ago, and people were walking by this far from the tabernacle, and not even a hat tip. I mean, just Uh, not even there. So, uh, not to get off tangent. Uh, Say, uh, here's a question: Good Friday the the one handed host rise and elevation is there yeah. any significance behind that
0: you know I don't know I mean the uh, the significance why he raised it that way honestly I don't know It's just it's a great simplification of everything uh-huh. uh, you you know by everything that's happening there's something very very grave is happening because he's instructed you know they get to the altar. And the the deacon just goes up to undo the ribbon. He doesn't even take the ribbon off. He just unfastens the ribbon. He loosens. Then they incense the the Blessed Sacrament in the chalice, where it's all covered with. Some people maybe don't know what's going on here, but before they didn't give communion to everybody, didn't have a suborbent that was put in the back. You had one chalice with one host in there. On top of that chalice gets put the pall first. Mm -hmm. Then you get the the paten upside down on top of the pall. And then you get like a linen shroud, which is it's made out of silk or something, and you dress the whole thing there, and then you wrap it at the bottom. It's like it's like clothing our Lord, and then you place him in the sepulcher. And that's where we, we talk about the altar of repose. We still use that language, and I used it before. Mm-hmm. But that's why you would find some of these old tabernacles that they use. They look like urns. Surgical mm-hmm. books refer to them as urns mm-hmm. because urns were something for I mean, our, our Lord's a living, uh, obviously, a lot. But we place our Lord in there because it's the sepulcher. Mm-hmm. That's why we refer to it as the sepulcher. One host in one chalice covered with the pall, which a pall is something you cover a dead body with, covered with the, the, the pattern. And it's interesting, when you read the prayers and the spirituality behind the, the, the chalice and the pattern, mm-hmm. these, these always form the tomb of our Lord mm-hmm. when they're united together. There's a point in the Mass where after the after the consecration, when the priest, after the Our Father, he takes the patent and he slides the host underneath it, then he takes the patent and he lays it at the foot of the chalice. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's a continuity between the two. They're no longer separated. He one does that because it could be particles there, but also you're, you're forming that that oneness with the with the sepulchre, would be the spiritual signif- or at least one of the spiritual significances behind it. So when he gets instructed with that he has his chalice in front of him he's got the the the, uh the deacon and the celebrant work together to one takes the chalice to get the host to come out the other the deacon holds the patent they it falls out on onto the patent he hands it to the to the priest the priest slides it out onto the the corporal and then you have all your other prayers when it gets finally to the point then they have to do like like an offertory of sorts then he, he holds it just like he would before the Dignus, and he's going to do the elevation. He leaves his hand laying on the altar. There is no clacker. They don't elevate the chasuble just in silence. He does one elevation. So he's got the patent on the altar and he has to raise it above the patent all the way up into the air above his head. So everyone can see it. And then he brings it back down. Mm-hmm. I would presume the reason he's doing it that way, why with one hand, I don't know, uh, but simply he's allowing the people to adore. Once adoration came in, it would be an interesting thing to look at in the, in the Holy Week before um, before, ador- before the major elevation started to become common within the liturgy. Did, did they do just one hand elevation or did they not do an elevation at all? That would be an interesting thing to look at to study yeah. on the liturgy.
1: Uh, the adoration of the cross. Um, you know, I, maybe I'm just an idiot, but I never put two and two together about veiling everything and then unveiling. Uh, yeah, can you can you t- talk about uh, and who's holding the cross? Why is that significant? Uh, the whole process of that. Why is that? Well, obviously we, we know why, but yeah, the meaning, significance behind it.
0: Well, <laughs> everything was before everything was veiled for all of uh, we we veil things for passion tied and it's really because from the spiritual sense now when i when i say spiritual sense what i mean is in the roman right uh things are very practical they're more practical than spiritual in the gallican right everything was more spiritual than practical Uh, and a lot of times you have some people that kind of you know they want to think of a spiritual link to everything. But in the Roman rite, the beauty of our right comes from the austerity of our right. And our right is very, very practical because it's Roman, very practical. So when, with the veiling of the images and the crosses, that would have been for all of, all of Lent. They just, they, they, it was a penance. It was not a penance. They just veiled everything. <laughs> now we do it because the reading on that Sunday I'm not I'm not trying to say we do it because of that, but at least the reading on that Sunday and the spiritual significance we can give to it is that's when our Lord has that that famous discussion with uh, the Pharisees and the Jews there at the temple. And he just says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And he leaves and you don't really see him at Jerusalem again until he comes back. Right. Mm -hmm. So our Lord's hidden. He hides himself from the Jews. And so we cover all the churches. All the, all the uh, images in the church in the, in the cross so that's really part of it and then, then I would presume that uh, a liturgy developed out of that and so now when we're getting close we're going through this liturgy um, which came to us from Jerusalem the adoration of the cross and uh, you know everything that they would have done there probably especially after they got the cross back after the you know the, the, the Syrians had taken it and you had you um, how you say it in English, but I don't know if his name's Hercules, but the emperor that was there. Mm-hmm. Is, his name name. Just, is that what it is? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so he when he walked it back, and that's where we get some mm-hmm. other. So, you know, the, the, it's the adoration of the cross. It makes its way to us here, here in the West. And then we're just, we're, we're making our way back through that for people that can't go to Jerusalem to do that it started to make its way into our parishes, into our churches, and it became a very established thing. Like I said, it's one of the more modern uh, elements of, of Holy Week that we have. It dates back to the 800s when we first start seeing it everywhere. So it was already established before that, but we start seeing it consistently in the 800s. Um, so there's, four, there's basically four parts of that liturgy after all the colics, that are read, you know, the famous colics that are read, the the the, the prayers. Mm-hmm. We have the, um, the adoration of the cross, and so the deacon. It's interesting in the old rite that the deacon he goes up because he's already he doesn't have a chasuble he's in the broad stole. He goes up and gets the the cross, and this is where when in, in our modern liturgies we're always used to these big crosses that are somehow rigged up on the altar somehow. But before they had they had they had crosses that fit into a footing. Liturgical books will even say the footing should be the same footing as the candlesticks. Things mm-hmm. so that we don't understand anymore because we don't have that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What you have is this base that the cross slides in and out of, mm-hmm. and it's it's veiled. So the deacon would go up with the master of ceremonies, and they would work together to get the cross out of that. And he would come down at this point at the foot of the altar on the epistle side. You have the you have the celebrant and the subdeacon. They've taken off. They have they've taken off the chasubles. And now they're standing there facing the people. He gives them the cross and now they're going to unveil it with, with the Echelin, you know, that we already, you know, that we chant in there and that we all have the adoration where we all kneel except for the celebrant and we sing um, in, in adoration of the cross. Do that three times when they get up, when he gets to the very center of the altar. So the first time he unveils the top, then the right arm, and then the whole thing, then it's the celebrant who takes the cross and walks down to a tarp, a, a carpet that's laid out on the floor, going up onto the first step, which has a purple pillow and a white cloth over top of that pillow. And he he kneeling lays the cross on the floor. Mm-hmm. Now, every 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 action after that is an adoration of that cross. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is they go back to for we won't be doing it this year, this year in probably most places, but when the people are adoring the cross. Uh, either you you lay that on the floor somewhere where they can come up, which I found personally is modestly doesn't work because you get a lot of the you know you, the mixed sexes coming up and you have ladies in their skirts and they have to bend down on the ground. It just doesn't work out. and You got married men behind them. So a lot of places you have a priest coming to the altar rail and you let everybody adore. When they're done, the deacon goes over to collect the cross. Every everyone kneels, even the celebrant. Everybody kneels down. Adoration as he walks from one place to the next with a cross in his hands. Whereas in the the newer liturgy, the 1955, you've got these interesting interesting novelties that happen on on Good Friday. On Good Friday, as soon as you've unveiled the cross at the center, the priest gives the cross to these two servers who are standing next to him on the the predella, on the the foot place, the, the top step. And then he goes down. So the foot place, which is meant for the priest, you leave two young servers up there holding the cross and the priest goes down to the floor and it makes a genuflection. He goes, takes off his shoes and they kiss the, I forget exactly how it works now, but you have these two servers now who are taking the cross everywhere and nobody cares. They could care less. They just go and sit down and start doing the reproaches and nobody does anything about it. Then you leave the cross on the floor with candles next to it. It's just absolutely mind-boggling that we did that. And where is the cross? This shows you how hastily they did the 1955 uh, reform, because you don't find out on Thursday you have to strip the altar, and you don't, you don't know that you're supposed to get rid of the cross. All you know is that on Friday it says, and now the deacon goes to the sacristy to bring the cross out. So you find out on Friday where the cross is. It's in the sacristy. Does that make sense? they I mean, just completely. Ass, right, so the, the significance is is we're seeing something that's that's really quite extraordinary. We're, we're it starts to deeply impress on you when you see the deacon no longer genuflecting. So when he when the people are adoring the cross, the deacon has to go get the altar ready because after that we have to have the opposite procession we had the day before bring the blessed sacrament back. While he's doing that, he doesn't genuflect to the altar. Because an altar without a cross doesn't receive any reverence except for a kiss. Those are the old rubrics. Mm-hmm. Where does he genuflect? Wherever he's going, he turns and genuflects wherever the cross is. It looks very strange, but it, it really leaves an impression on you. Because you, you got the cross out with the people, and they're they're venerating the cross. And he's turning his back to the altar, facing some priest who's walking around with the cross. And he genuflects that and walks back to to the sedalia where the, where the, where the ministers are very interesting. And then when he goes to collect, it takes it to the altar. Even the celebrant, everybody stops, everybody uncovers, everybody kneels. There's complete stillness. And we wait until the cross gets back up into its place. Mm-hmm. And then every reference after that is a genuflection.
1: Like I said, the first time I saw it, just blown away on the beauty behind it. Even though it was long, it felt like it went by in 20 minutes. Yeah, You mentioned the sadness that you can feel during the liturgies. Um Tenebrae. Uh, can you expand on that just a little bit of why, what that is? I thought it was cool. I thought it was real cool when you talked about Fortescue, thought about the last candle being, hey, you know, it might also just be the way to get out of the church. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well- so, no, I mean, they're, they're, again, there's a lot of different spiritual significances and things like that. But essentially, you have a candle for every psalm. Mm-hmm. So there will be nine psalms in Matins, five psalms in Lauds. And then you're going to put out a candle for every verse. Well, half of the verses of the Benedictus at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the Benedictus, when that's sung, uh, for the last six verses, you put a candle out on each side. So you got, you've got the 14, you've got 15 candles on the hearsay which is uh, the triangle. And then you've got six candles on the altar. And after each psalm, you put one out, gospel side, epistle side, you just keep going back. And you leave the very last one at the very top, just there lit. Then you've got six candles lit on the altar. Whereas in the 55, one day you show up, there's only four candles on the altar. And the next day, it just changes. And you're not sure why you're doing that. Uh, But six candles on the altar for the Benedictus. And as you're going through, chanting these, these songs, which are long, you know, take, sometimes each day is a bit different, but you're in there about, about three and a half hours. If you sing all the tracks and you do all the, if you sing everything, it's, mm-hmm. it's a nice long and you start to feel that sense of sadness as it gets darker and darker and darker and you're getting tired because you're fatigued being there anyways, mm-hmm. And then finally, you get to the point where you get to the, uh, the, the, you know, the last prayers. There's an extra miserere. There's the paternoster. You're kneeling for all of that. And then the server comes up and he grabs the the candle and he takes it and he hides it behind the altar. And after all the prayers are done, the master ceremony makes a bang and everybody just starts. There's just this rumbling and it it seems silly. Silly when you think about it, but when you're sitting there and you've been emotionally drawn through this whole thing, and then you hear this pounding, you think, our Lord died. Mm-hmm. He died. And there was really there was darkness on the earth. And, and there was a there was an earthquake that uh that, 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 that racked the earth and split rocks. I mean, if you go to different countries, they say the, this rock split during during you know that terramulta, during that earthquake. Um so, yeah, it, it, there, there's a symbolism there that carries us through while we're just doing the simple, uh, literary, basically it's a funeral service. Mm-hmm. And you feel the sense of that funeral service as you're there uh, praying, uh, you know, tenebrae. Uh, and then you get up at the end of it. The server walks back out after the terremoto, after the, after the earthquake. He walks up to the, the epistle side. He stands there for a minute, puts it back up on the top. Puts it out, and some people say he leaves it. He, he leaves it a lit, and you just stand up and walk out. Just it's just very somber. Yeah,
1: yeah. I remember first time going to it, and like when they all walked out, I'm going, "Is that it? What's?" what's... Yeah. <laughs> you But to you can anything. feel it. You can feel
0: the loss. Like something bad has happened. Yeah. Nice. Something bad has happened.
1: Well, Father's fascinating stuff, and yeah, like I said, watch the three-hour one. You get father gets even deeper on going with the prayers throughout the week. The different liturgies throughout the week as well, historical back and forth, uh, Father. What's the website?
0: It's pre It's pre nineteen fifty five holyweekcom
1: And again, we'll have it on the show note on a, underneath the video in the show notes description section as well. Uh, anything else you could think of you want to speak on? I mean, we could go on all day. I mean, it'll be Holy yeah, yeah.
0: Week if we well, keep going. I will just mention. I'll just mention that the website is. Um, it, it's, it's just meant to be a resource. Like, um, I'm glad to take any contributions If people want to, there, there are some people that send me different things. I just got some new stuff up on for, uh, for, for Spanish. Mm-hmm. There's an Italian section to it. Doesn't have as much to it, but, um, I had, you know, we, the, all the booklets that are on there, I'd like to redo and get more kind of pragmatic people like Fortescue commentaries, but who knows if that'll ever happen. Um, but it's there as a resource to help clerics, Because there's a one page just for clerics, anything they might need. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it, it gets costly and you don't know what to do, especially Diocesan priests if they're going to be doing this. Um, it gets overwhelming. Like, where do I get everything? Mm-hmm. So I put website up just to be able to, to do that. Then there's the stuff for the people. Um, donations are always helpful because it helps me pay for the website. Mm-hmm many people donate to it but if anybody wants to help contribute to that that'll help you pay for the website but at least for resources, resource if anybody takes resources at least say a prayer for me I mean, just you know, don't just take it for nothing say say i could use all the prayers i could get so there's that and um yeah just just to let people know about it so they can try to improve the holy week especially improve our participation in it because the more the more disposed we are in participating in holy liturgy, the more graces we receive in those liturgies. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the goals of the website is to help dispose us more more profoundly to these great mysteries so we can enter in in a more profound way um, to, to all the graces that are offered to us in holy. week.
1: Yeah, I was telling a friend today, first off, I didn't know you put Spanish up today. I'll put it up on the Spanish tab. But uh, a lot, one of the pros coming out of this little uh, hiatus we have from being at going to mass is those was people that saw the pre-55 palm sunday and going that wouldn't have happened without that so there's been a lot of people exposed to it and asking yeah. if we, all week we're uh, going to have it that way tenebrae is going to be pre-55 tritium is going to be pre-55 the visual is going to be that so if you haven't seen it you're going to see it on on this on the streaming uh, so father, uh, Friar, thank you very much. Uh, we have the, we've already talked about doing this with manliness. So we're looking forward to doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe we can talk about St. Francis a little bit here and there. That'd be Who, good. I mean, the guy
1: with the bird. I mean, yeah, America, America
0: <laughs> needs St. Francis. Yeah. They need the real St. Francis is what that, they need.
1: Definitely up for that. Anytime you want. I'll to tell him.
0: you though, Americans are afraid of St. Francis because what he wants you to do is. Be like our Lord, and Americans are afraid of that. So, yeah, not too many
1: people know about the converter die thing he sent that assaulted. (laughs) But yes, definitely up for that. Uh, Well, Prior, thanks a lot again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. All right. God bless you. God bless.